everyone, this episode is going to be a little bit different because Caleb and I usually have like a guest, but we're kind of thinking it might be fun to every once in a while just have a conversation between us about certain issues that are going on or expand upon a topic that was talked about in an episode with a guest. And so today we wanted to talk a lot about Georgia's new voting law because uh, it's come under fire a lot recently uh, about being voter suppression while Republicans are arguing that it's election security. So there's a lot going on there. And so we want to actually dive in and see if it's actually suppression or security or a mixture of both. This conversation is intended to reopen our minds to the possibilities of the future. This is Utopia. The state of Georgia, though, is really important to be talking about, mainly because it's become a battleground state in recent years. Uh, So in just in 2018 alone, um, obviously the Republican gubernatorial candidate in the 2018 election did win, but they only won by 1.4 percentage points or just under 55,000 votes. So that means that it was a lot closer of an election than Republicans would want it to be. In the 2020 presidential election, Democrats won the state by just just under 12,000 votes. So it was about a 0.23 percentage point win for Joe Biden in the state. So it was very narrow. It was a big surprise and a big shock to Republicans who long thought that the state was, generally speaking, a safe Republican win. And so now it's like, oh no, what do they do, right? And then in the runoff election, because in Georgia there's runoff elections, if uh, somebody doesn't receive at least 50% of the vote during a general election, so I think it's the top two contenders in that case would go on to a runoff. But basically Georgia elected two Democratic senators, which was a big shock as well, because they typically would have never thought that was possible just a few years ago. People are criticizing the Republican Party there for saying like, oh, you guys are going and passing all these laws because you just saw you lost. So you want to cheat in order to win. But there might be actually some stuff in the law that is actually reasonable. Well, there's other stuff that's unreasonable. So it's kind of important to kind of parse through it. That's a lot. But yeah, and something I've heard from activists in Georgia is that, you know, in 2020, they played by the Republican legislator rules on voting and they won. And now that they've won, um, suddenly they're going to change the rules to make it harder to play. And so when you put it in that frame, it seems like a direct attack on voting um, to disen- to further disenfranchise people. And when we're talking about Georgia being a red state, I think it's Stacey Abrams who's famously said that Georgia has never been a red state. It's been a disenfranchised state. And when you really start to look at that and look at the historic turnout in 2020 of people who have never been engaged in politics before, this is what we want, you know, in democracy, we want to expand voting, not to limit it. Because when everybody has a say in it, that's when democracy works. Um, But as we continue to restrict voting more and more, as we'll unpack with this bill, uh, I think we get into dangerous territory where we start to, you know, threaten our democracy. The meaning of voting is shifting. The United States has long been, everybody shows up on election day, you cast your ballot, and that night you know who wins. But we're starting to realize that with the country growing, like we're getting, the country is growing, and um, the electorate is changing. And the ways that people are voting in addition to electorate changing is also changing. Like this year, we saw like, you know, a lot more people using absentee ballots, um, a lot more people voting early. And this is stuff that's always been available in states before, but it's never been used so widely because people just go on election day. But now that people kind of have had access to it 
and see how maybe easy it was for them, more people might want to do that more. And so it may change going forward how our elections are handled. We won't know, obviously, until maybe 2024 at least, right? Because a presidential election is where we get the most turnout. The fact that this election could have had such a big change in how people might vote moving forward, I think it's scary to certain people in power who could risk losing power by increasing the amount of people that are able to vote. Yeah, and I think you were hitting the nail on the head by um, pointing to power, you know, and I think in these instances, when we're when we're talking about government, talking about voting specifically, we have to think about power um, and, and think of the power dynamics in the situation, um, who benefits from this law, who is in power right now and who's gonna continue to stay in power because of voter suppression. And so, yeah, I think that's important to think about as we... Um, move forward with analyzing it is the power dynamics um, behind all of that, all of that. That's probably the social scientist in me um, saying, you know, let's look through it through this power dynamic lens, but I think it could be very useful. Yeah. And, and that, again, it's the power dynamic of like, who has long held the power in this country? And that's white Protestant men. They've long held the power and they've had a huge say in the electorate, but now we have a diversified electorate that is kind of threatening that power. And so that's where we get the white supremacy coming through the capital attack. They think their power is going away and that becomes the white supremacy thing. Uh, and, and that's kind of what some of these laws, it could be argued are trying to perpetuate, right? It's the white supremacy, keeping white Protestant people who are a shrinking percentage of the electorate to actually have greater power over other people. To me, the law, you know, it is cheating, but it's like they're layering it in this like, okay, there's some good aspects to this, but also we're going to strike all this other stuff. Uh, there's several different things a law touches on. We're not going to probably touch on every single little itty bitty thing, but we just kind of want to generally go through it. It affects absentee ballots, early voting, runoff elections, ballot drop boxes. And then there's the food and water provision that's gained a lot of attention. And then there's changes to the way elections are administered in the state. So those are just a few of the general things that the, the law touches on. In Georgia's case, during COVID, they allowed no excuse absentee ballots, and they're still allowing no excuse absentee ballots. So for any reason, you can request an absentee ballot. So that's that's one way the law at least does allow access to voting, um, at least to their credit. However, the time that voters have to request an absentee ballot has been cut in half from six months to just under three months. And now you have to have photo identification in addition to a signature, like with your absentee ballot when you return it. In addition to that, you also now have to request an absentee ballot. You'll get the application for it. Then you have to send the application back and then you get your absentee ballot. So it's kind of like a multi-step process. In the 2020 election, nearly one quarter of Georgia's electorate actually voted absentee. So it's just over a million people, especially if Democrats tend to vote more by absentee moving forward, then this could spell trouble for Democratic turnout if people are not motivated to go get those absentee ballots if they're unable to go in person. I started thinking about the like having to have a copy of your identification, your photo identification attached to your mail-in ballot and how maybe families don't have copy copiers or printers at home to like print off this stuff you know and then so is the state also gonna supply every single person with access to printing like to copying for free like this to me like if you think about it on a scale of class people who are lower class probably don't have this technology in their home because not only are printers like the reasonably priced, but ink gets expensive too. And so I don't know, there's like a red flag there for me that's like not given equal access to voting. Playing devil's advocate, somebody could argue, okay, go to your local library, use their printer. They may be less likely to vote because they have that extra barrier of having to go to the library, get the copy of their identification 
included with their ballot, all of this stuff. So like, to me, it's like, yeah, sure, it's not impossible to vote, but it makes it a lot more difficult. And I'd like to think like, how many people actually know that they can go to the public library and print things off? You know, is that going to be something that's widely advertised with this new provision that, hey, you can go to the public library and use this printer, this copier. And then you also have to think about transportation to the public library. How available is a public library to all of these voters in the state, you know, and people already have enough trouble getting to the polls themselves on polling day. Now they have to also get to a, a printer. Like, But then there's also early voting. So the, the law did a lot of changes to the absentee voting, but they also did a lot of changes to early voting. So I looked up some information about this and the Associated Press said that one day of weekend voting has been required previously. But now they're actually requiring that there's two Saturdays that are required during the early voting period for polling places in every county to be open, or at least for a county to provide a place for people to early vote. Um, And they're also saying that you have the ability to offer two Sunday voting days as well. Um, So they are in some ways expanding early voting. Uh, My my biggest concern, though, is that they're focusing so much on expanding the the in-person voting that they're not taking into account that not everyone can drive to a polling location, as you said previously, and that um, not everyone also lives in the state which they're registered to vote. The bill also like closes, establishes that polling locations close at 5 p.m., which is usually when working class people are getting off work. To me, it's like saying, okay, we're going to close this at 5 p.m., like, but you have these two Saturdays that you can come vote. Like, It's just like limiting access to middle class working people who should be able to go vote when they get off work. Like now saying, oh, you have two Saturday options. Like, what if you have kids that you have to watch on the weekend? Like, what if you're a single mom who has three kids and you can't take them to the polling location with you on that Saturday to vote early? Like, it just makes no sense. And to me, as I was saying earlier, how, you know, there are some like expansions of voting. This is one of them. But when you think about the other side of the coin, like closing polling locations at 5 p.m. when people are getting off work, that's a dig at working class people. So now the bill also um, changes kind of how runoff elections are conducted. Organizers in Georgia were able to play that game and to ultimately win with that. They played the game and they won. And now Georgia's saying, okay, let's change the rules. <laughs> Supporters of the law argue that Georgia's law shortens runoff elections down to four weeks, which might make them more manageable uh, because, you know, before it was like literally two whole months and, you know, we were just waiting and waiting and waiting. Like, when is like this going to be over? We were like, oh my Lord, like, I can't wait any longer. Like, I just need to know. And so like, that makes a lot of sense, I guess. I, I understand but that also does reduce the amount of time for in-person and mail-in voting for that runoff election. But what really actually irks me about this um, is that they're not allowing people to register new voters between the general election and the runoff election. And that was, I think, a big reason why Democrats won in the January 5th election was because they registered more voters um, in that time and they turned them out in January. Yeah, it's surprising to me that I mean, I was <laughs> like when the 2020 election came down to that to control the Senate, like whew, the stakes were high <laughs> for those two months. I was like hella stressed out, you know, I mean, I still am hella stressed out, but like <laughs> nothing's changed. <laughs> I know everything. It's like I remember like election day or election night, rather, like we knew it was going to turn into election week. And like, I just remember like trying to concentrate in class and like trying to do online school and then literally having like the New York Times, like election results open in like a separate tab. And I'm like not paying attention. I'm like just looking like refreshing. 
when am I, when are we gonna know stuff like I just want to know okay shall we talk about ballot drop boxes this is like a beefy a beefy piece so get ready listeners it's gonna be a fun one georgia's new law also uh, changes kind of how ballot drop boxes are are kind of implemented like a drop box is basically supposed to expand the right to vote and allow people 24 7 to like access the drop box so they can just securely drop off their ballot somebody you know comes like every day or every hour or whatever and like empties it you know like an actual poll worker and then like those people take the ballots and process them into their system when they take them back to like i guess the elections office and georgia i don't think had these before the 2020 election so to their credit they're still allowing drop boxes moving forward but the problem is they're now only allowing one ballot drop box per approximately every hundred thousand active registered voters this means that like there'll be less of them than previously also they can only now be placed inside government buildings or voting centers so to me this not only makes ballot drop boxes more difficult to find but it also reduces the hours they can be accessed which basically makes them obsolete because the whole point of them is to be a 24-7 safe and secure way of voting. For sure. And when we're talking about that many people with such small amount of drop boxes, like what happens when the drop box is full? Is it going to be checked every day? Like there's so many like what ifs that come up in my head that it's like this is so unnecessary. (laughs) All of these changes, it seems, you know, it's like the system was not good in the first place, but this is not any better than what it was. So there was a provision also um, about the no more food or water being passed out. This is what gained like a lot of attention from like all the major news outlets, social media was up in arms about it. It basically, the wording of the law is like that food or water cannot be distributed within 150 feet of a polling place or within 25 feet of a voter standing in line at a polling place. So it's designed, I guess, to prevent, you know, political groups from influencing like a hungry and thirsty voter, like waiting in line, like here's some water, like then you might be more inclined to vote for that person's candidate. I can see that there are laws in other states that prevent you from doing stuff within like a certain vicinity of a polling place. So I kind of see why they would do this. I guess the biggest problem though, is that Georgia has such long lines, especially in minority communities, because of the fact that there's just not enough, I guess, precincts, right. Or like places to vote. Polling places can provide at least drink dispensers for voters waiting in line. So there is a way around it. But it's like if a polling place decides not to um, and people are like thirsty and stuff like, you know, that could be a concern. But also, like, I think in the previous laws and in most laws in most states, you're not allowed to give out like food or water or anything in exchange for a vote. And so like people have gotten around it by not giving it like you're not giving out food and water saying, hey, please vote for this candidate. Like I'll give you water and food like they're giving out water and food to everyone who's waiting in line because it's a long line and people are waiting there for hours upon hours. You know, just giving food and water to another human being like is illegal. Bizarre. (laughs) Not not a state that I want to live in or be an active part of, you know, like if it's literally illegal to give like food and water to somebody else who's just Mm -hmm. waiting to vote which should not be a long process a to begin with you shouldn't have to wait hours to begin with like that's that's the root of the problem i think you're right you're actually touching on something really interesting there it's like it's not even the provision itself but the provision is like like a symptom of the larger problem like the provision is trying to crack down on something that is happening because of literal voter suppression like having long lines so It's kind of like saying, huh, we're not going to fix the long lines. We're just going to make it more miserable to stand in a long line. But when Georgia has such long lines to begin with, this doesn't seem to be doing something to fix that problem. I think too, we we should mention too, a long line, like having to wait in a long line, especially on voting day, especially if you you have to take off work or if you have to skip work in order to vote, 
that is basically a poll tax. Some, some companies obviously will offer the day off or something or give you a few hours to vote and it doesn't affect your salary. But if you're like an hourly worker who like turns down a shift so you can go vote, that's basically a poll tax. Anyway, in a less brighter note, the Republican Party in Georgia um, has also allowed the state election board to intervene in county election management more. So this means that they have more power to remove county officials should it choose to do so. Georgia has 159 counties. They largely operate elections on their own. But now the state election board has more power to kind of exert some influence in those counties. I'm concerned about this because... I think that the Republican Party is kind of going down this fascist path where they kind of say, if we lose, it's fraud. If we don't do as well as we thought we would, it's because people are making up votes when it's not necessarily, that's like completely fabricated. And so I'm worried if Georgia becomes more of a democratic state, the Republican Party could say, ooh, the, Re the Democrat won by like one percentage point and we don't like that. So we think that so-and-so in DeKalb County like didn't, do something right, we're going to replace you with somebody who's actually going to help us find votes or something. Like, I feel like it gives them the power to do that. Yeah, I think, I, well, I think that's exactly what it does, like giving them, giving the state the power to intervene in local county elections. Like, this to me is the scariest part of the bill. <laughs> there was a, a Reuters poll um, that was taken January 20th and 21st, so around Inauguration Day. Um, that still showed that 61% of Republicans still believe that Trump lost because of election rigging and illegal voting. If that number is still true today, and I don't know if other polls have similar numbers, so we can't just go off of one poll, but that itself is still terrifying to think that there is a big chunk of the Republican Party that believes that the election was stolen when it wasn't. And so I feel like that kind of emboldens the people in power to want to play into that, especially because they are part of the problem that they are like the people that actually incited that, like that belief. And so I feel like that is very concerning. What will happen? Like, we, we have to be very careful here. We should be supporting election integrity, but we shouldn't be allowing, like, people in power that are from, like, a fascist-leaning party to, like, give themselves, like, control over an election if they're not going to be happy with the results, because they never will be if they lose. What message is that going to send to the people of Georgia? You know, because at that point, that's not a state that works for the people. It's not a government that works for the people. But I guess like after all this passed, um, kind of it, it drew a lot of attention when Major League Baseball actually decided to move its all-star game from Atlanta to Denver to protest the laws passing. Um, so Colorado's political junkies, you know, saw the all-star game's relocation to Denver as like big validation that Colorado's voting laws were like, right and just and perfect in every way. Uh, but then Brian Kemp, good old Brian Kemp, governor of Georgia was like, that's all hypocritical of them because Colorado's voting laws are, you know, just as restrictive as Georgia's. So the M, uh, what is it? I don't know sports. Yeah. MLB, the major league baseball. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm gay. I don't do sports. But then I looked more into it. Colorado and Georgia conduct their elections completely differently. So it's almost like comparing apples to oranges. Like they were saying like Georgia offers more in-person early voting days in Colorado. But the thing is, Colorado doesn't actually have as much demand for in-person voting because Colorado conducts its elections almost entirely by mail. Like everyone receives a ballot in the mail, like around two weeks before the election, they fill it out, put it back in their mailbox or a drop-off location, and then they're done. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like the Colorado state government is grasping for power in the same way that it seems that the Republican Party in Georgia is. Um, and so when you take all this context, there's two entirely different conversations going on here. And I think that Georgia's governor Kemp is like further like giving like a Republican talking point, you know, just pointing the finger in the other direction saying, oh, they're just as bad. You know, their laws are just as bad. 
it doesn't change the fact that this is horrific and this is like a huge attack on voting rights. You know, like he can say Colorado's voting rights are just as bad in this and this, but it doesn't change the fact that like this is what it is. He's so, they were so quick to be like, oh, look at that state and that state and that state, but it doesn't excuse your behavior. But like, just because somebody else does something bad doesn't mean that like if you do something equally as bad that you should just be automatically excused to get away with it also colorado had one ballot drop box available per 9400 active registered voters and georgia's only one per 100,000 moving forward so colorado has a lot more ballot drop boxes available i'm sure colorado is a smaller state than georgia generally speaking so maybe it's a little bit easier to do that but regardless they're technically investing in making sure that because they vote entirely by mail, that they have enough ballot drop boxes to make it easy for everyone to access them. Uh, Colorado only requires one of 16 forms of identification when someone registers to vote. So there's a lot of different options. Um, and if you vote by mail and you're already registered, you don't need a form of identification since it'll just match your signature. But in Georgia, you only have one of six forms of identification when you vote in person. And if you vote by mail, you have to include now your driver's license number and a copy of a state identification card or social security number with your ballot, as we spoke about. So in Georgia, like, the identification requirements are a little more restrictive than Colorado as well. But in Colorado, since most people vote by mail, they don't even have to worry about the identification because their signature is enough. There is a different story, though, because um, Delaware came under criticism, too, because Joe Biden's from there. Joe Biden called Georgia's law new Jim Crow. It's a whole thing. And, and there is criticism, I think, to be had there. Delaware um, doesn't even have actually in-person early voting um, or no excuse absentee voting, both things that Georgia does have. Uh, and, and Delaware actually does not rank much better in comparison to Georgia um, when it comes to access to the ballot. Delaware ranked 33rd in the nation, Georgia ranked 49th. So Georgia's second to last, but, and Delaware is a little bit better, but they're both pretty low on the, on the spectrum. So, but like, I think this is important to look at, like, yeah, they, they, they came at Colorado, but Colorado may be actually an exemplar of what to do. But now we do have other states that like maybe democratic leaning that also need to like improve how they expand their voting and access to the ballot. There are laws on the books, even in New York state, right? Very, very heavily democratic state, like that are in line with what's going on in Georgia right now. So we really need to look at kind of an introspective thing. Like if progressives want to like go and lash out at Georgia, that's fine. But we also need to be looking at, you know, democratic leaning states that, that may not be trending in the right direction fast enough, um, or, or may not even be thinking about how their laws could be impacting people. Yeah, and to me, this is like further sounding the push for national voter reform. And so, you know, this isn't just an isolated problem um, to Georgia. This is something that we're dealing with nationally. And if there was ever a time for a Voting Rights Act um, that like puts all the states on the same voting standards, like now, now is the time. Um, but I also want to clarify too, like when I'm, when I say like national voter reform, I don't necessarily envision like the society where like our federal government controls elections for the states, but instead just like sets these guidelines and says like, look, these are the things you're required to offer and we're going to assist you in them, like assist you in in having the money to, you know, upgrade these voting systems to provide more polling precincts. But I still think, you know, I still think it should be controlled state by state, because if not, we could be getting into dangerous territory in the next few presidential elections. You know, if somebody tries to take that power, if we give the federal government the power to control elections, we could find ourselves in like even bigger trouble than this is right now. The narrative right now largely stands around 
you know, when more people vote, Democrats win, but Republicans could also benefit from allowing more people to vote. We need to, we need to change the narrative and say like, this is for everyone. As so long as like democratic leadership and stuff doesn't kind of like jump on that, I think we're doing a disservice. For sure. And I think the 2020 election really blew that concept up of, as like, when more people vote, Democrats win, because like we saw historic vote, voter turnout, but it wasn't like a landslide victory for Joe Biden in any way. Maybe when you look at the um, electoral college, it looks that way. But when we're looking at the popular vote, it's a pretty like narrow, it's not a huge margin. So I think that that really proves to show or goes to show that um, it's not just Democrats who benefit when more people vote. Both parties kind of have the opportunity to win. It requires adapting to the needs of the people while also still trying to push something that can really make people's lives better. And I think voting reform is something that Democrats are trying to focus on. I think it's a good thing, but I think that like we have to understand that the Democratic Party can't just stop at voting reform. Now that we're getting to a place where people understand that voting is power and there's widespread voter um, engagement movements and stuff, and, and I think we're getting to a place, you know, where people aren't gonna just like sit down and take this anymore you know not that they ever did historically there's there's always been pushback movements against um these sort of like jim crow laws but now it seems like you know maybe we should have learned our lesson back then restricting votes is not the way to go and democracy only works if everyone can participate so yeah i guess just let this be the call not to restrict (laughs) voting rights as we're seeing right now I don't know. I'm really just mind boggled at this whole thing. Um, It's a lot to process, you know, that like we've learned about this stuff in history class and now this is like happening right in front of our faces yet again. Utopia is a lemon jerky production produced by Joshua McLean and Caleb Chrisley. The podcast is edited by Joshua McLean. The jingle was composed by LJ Garcia.